What's good, everybody? I'm John Zestrzewski, host of New York, New York with JJ, the first podcast on The Ringer and Spotify dedicated to you, the New York sports fan. We've got episodes three nights a week, plus bonus episodes whenever news breaks. So make sure you follow the show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Everybody, Happy New Year. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You are listening to Black on the Air, and Happy New Year to everybody, 2022. Hard to, hard to believe we are here in 2022. What a journey. Um, <clears throat> I apologize, I have a little bit of a trace of, um, I was going to say a cold, but uh, it turns out that I actually um, am recovering from COVID. Um, I had a bit, you know, it, it felt like just a, a little bit of a cold, um, uh, a couple of days, um, after Christmas on a Monday, like I caught a chill. I've had that feeling before. And, um, you know, I had a little bit of a fever and I took a COVID test. I was negative and I had a little bit of a, the next day I felt better, but I had a bit of a sore throat and I had a sore throat for a few days. And, um, I just thought nothing of it. And then a week later on that Monday after, um, I was feeling much better, but I said, you know, let me just take a test. And I took a test and I was positive, uh, this past Monday. So I don't know how soon after I first took that negative test that, um, I was positive, but it was really shocking because honestly, you guys, I really have not been anywhere. I mean, the chances to get, um, this Omnicrom or whatever it's called was so slim, but that's how, you know, I think contagious this thing is. And I, I have to be honest with you. I was a little scared at first because, you know, a year ago I lost my brother who had COVID, but you know, it was a bit different then. And he did have, you know, some bad things he was going with health wise and it was pre vaccine and all that. I have to tell you though, it didn't make me feel so good that I'm vaccinated and boosted and all that stuff. And apparently from all the news that this variant, um, doesn't seem to be as deadly as the others, including, you know, Delta and the other ones, which made me feel a little better. And I was pretty much symptomless at the time that I tested, you know, um, like I said, I just had this little bit of linger here. Um, but you know, that feels like things that I've had before, you know, in terms of the cold realm, right? Not even, didn't even get up to the flu level. Oh man, but it's still scary. <laughs> I have to tell you, it's very scary. Um, I've since, uh, later this week have tested negative, um, but I'm going to keep testing to make sure, cause I know it can be real tricky. Um, these types of things, but I am isolating. I'm at home. I was going to go to a funeral today, today's Saturday. Um, a good friend of mine passed away. I don't think it was from COVID. Um, he was older. He was a writer. Really great guy. I'll mention his name, John Bowman, um, who wrote, uh, created the show Martin and um, was on a living color. It was just a great guy. Really, really great guy. 
Um, so my condolences out to his family and, you know, a lot of people I know are going to be gathering today. So my heart goes out to you guys, but I would love to have been there, but you know, I can't, even though I tested negative, I'm still staying home and isolating for a while. I don't know what's happening with these CDC recommendations, guys. It is so confusing. I don't know if you've been confused by them, but I think the safest thing is for me, at least Larry, just stay at home. You know, be cool. There's no rush. There's nothing to do anyway, really. You know, not many places to go because it's just raging right now. Um, my two kids uh, have tested negative, so that's good. Um, and so that's what that's what's happening, you guys. I've been <laughs> I've been dealing with the Rona, dealing with the Rona like everybody else out there, um, fighting the good fight. But um, we have a, a really a fun pod today with my friend uh, Prentice Penny, the uh, showrunner of Insecure. Guys, Prentice, he's so talented. He's such an interesting guy. He has so many different skill sets, and uh, it was so much fun talking to him. Uh, we chatted yesterday about uh, his journey primarily, and it's really good for you guys to hear because I know a lot of people out there who listen to this are kind of maybe interested in showbiz or they're interested by showbiz, you know, like they're interested in how it works or they're interested in being in it. And hearing Prentice's journey is so inspirational. He's such an amazing guy. And we talk about Insecure, of course, too, and, and his work on that. So I think you will enjoy that. What do we have to talk about today? I know there's so much going on. Um, We had the January 6th thing, which, guys, I don't know what to tell you. I'm just so not interested in that. I don't know why. It just doesn't pique my interest that much. I thought, should I talk about that? And I'm like, what is there to say, really? I mean, I I think a lot of people feel like me. Like, they're more exhausted by that type of thing. You know why? Because I think for a lot of us, it just represents all of that Trump trash that he just took us through during his time in office. He, he's just such a trash of a human being. And the way that, you know... He left office, just epitomized his, you know, everything about him just as a person to me, you know. Um, and this Trumpy part of the Republican Party is unlike anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. The, you know, the level of delusion that these people have because their commitment to this cult of Trump is so complete. It's different than any kind of partisan ideology things that I've seen in my lifetime. It's this um, um, adoration of this person, this personality, you know, I think that's the thing for people like on my side who couldn't stand Trump and, you know, all that stuff, you know, see saw as the most dangerous part of the Trump presidency, not so much the policies but the person doing the policies, most of the times it's the policies and who cares about the person, you know, you're against this or you're against that. But with Trump, I always felt differently. Of course, I didn't agree with many of the policies, but um, it was him as a person. I always thought was the biggest threat um, to so many different things. And it proved itself on January 6th, which to me, some people call it an insurrection. Some people call it a coup. Some people call it right. I think at the least it was a, a attempted coup, a failed attempted coup. And the second part of it that was instigated by a sitting president of the fucking United States, you guys. That is what makes it different from everything, because 
if you look through history, I mean, of course, we've had many riots before for many different reasons. Riots happen all over the world. That's happened before. But in the United States, it's rare that, um, you know, we've had instances. Let me put it a different way. People have attacked uh, federal buildings and the Capitol and the government in different ways. You know, citizens who are angry about this and that. It's occurred in many different ways. Assaulting the Capitol building is not a new thing, in other words. Here's what's new about it. We have never had a sitting president, you know, a sitting president who ginned up a mob to stop the certification of an election that he lost. That is what's different about this. Normally, people are fighting over this and they hate the war or how people are being treated here or they want this or that. You know, George Floyd summer, you know, a lot of the racial stuff caused people to attack federal buildings, different places. I think Portland, that kind of stuff. People are, get angry about things. Citizens get angry. People have things they get angry about. Government has been the target of that anger. But never, never. In the history of the United States of America, and this is where the right just will not fucking admit this. The Trumpy right will not admit this. And I just can't understand this. That a sitting fucking president did this. Trying to stop the certification of an election. That's the part of January 6th that gets me. Which is why I disagree with um People comparing it to 9-11 or Pearl Harbor. No, 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 no. Those are completely different things. Uh, biggest difference is, is we were attacked by foreign entities, whether they were terrorists or a country, you know, where thousands of Americans died. And those events united the country, albeit maybe temporarily, but united the country. January 6th was, was the antithesis of that. You know, it was the leader of the country himself try to undermine the whole democratic institution. And if anything, it left our country more divided. That motherfucker left us more divided. It did not unite the country. So I disagree with people who paint it as that type of thing, because it's not. It's something different than that. Let's separate what it is. There are people responsible for that shit who are Americans. That's the biggest difference. You know... Those other events were not done by Americans. They were other people trying to hurt America. That's why we were united. This is Americans themselves, and the most important American, the president doing this shit. Uh, if anything, it made most of our heads explode, which is why I think a lot of people just want to forget it, you know, just want to put it, you know, put it behind us. And we want people involved to go to jail and go to prison and all that stuff. You know, it's so amazing that uh, the other distinction about Trump in this is that we've had <laughs> presidents who've been horrible people. We know that. And by the way, I've always joked every politician lies. You know, I don't consider politicians to be, you know, are a paragon of society in terms of the type of person they are and, and have great character and all that. I don't expect them to. But even politicians with the you know, least amount of character have always seemed to have at least a respect for the office, you know, especially the presidents, even Nixon, you know, who you could argue <laughs> in our modern days, you know, may have been the most Machiavellian, right? Even Nixon resigned. Even he had a modicum of respect for the office of the presidency, 
you know, even the first time he ran for president against Kennedy, he probably had every right to contest that election, you know, but he didn't, you know. And he always said it was for the good of the country. Stepped aside for the good of the country. As much as he probably didn't want to, you know, as much as he was craving about power and had an enemies list and all that stuff. Nixon! (laughs) Nixon himself had more respect than Donald Trump did, you know. So, I hope this motherfucker doesn't run for president again. I I don't know how... uh, you know, this is an election year, so we're definitely going to cover that this year uh, if I'm talking about what I'm looking forward to this year. So this being an election year, this whole Trump cult, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in the Republican Party. Is it going to divide it? Is it going to fracture it? Is it going to make this the weirdest midterm election that we've seen in a while where usually the people in power take a drubbing, but who knows what's going to happen this time? It'll be interesting to see. So we'll take a look at that. The opposite of Trump... I don't even want to mention them in the same breath, really. But in terms of character and, you know, being able to look up to somebody was someone who we just lost. And that was Sidney Poitier. Man, this makes me very sad. Um, losing Sidney Poitier. He was such a hero to me growing up. I mean, it's funny because his character was the thing. Sidney Poitier was a brilliant actor, especially of his time and everything. But the character that that came through the screen um, that really affected me also as a young black kid growing up and being proud of seeing someone on screen with who had this fierce intelligence and an even more fierce humanity is the best way to describe Sidney Poitier. Do yourself a favor especially young people. If you haven't seen many Sidney Poitier films, uh, go on the internet, see the list, start with the early ones and work your way through to the later ones. They're really good. Um, And, um, you know, he was somebody who really made it against all odds. And at one point, I... He was the biggest movie star in the world. And this is this is like during the race right 60s. Sidney Poitier, 1968, was the biggest movie star in the world. That's crazy, you guys. I think he had three movies out at the same time, you know, that were all huge box office successes. To Serve Love, In the Heat of the Night, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. All kind of coincided at around the same time. Sidney Poitier, as successful as he was, also was an activist and also was fiercely aware of the responsibility that was on his shoulders as being a person of color in that position. And he wore it so well. Um, You know, he was just, just brilliant with that. And it's funny because at that time, um, the thing that's different about then than now, there's a lot of things, but the way in which, uh, Black people, and especially Sidney Poitier, were expressing uh, what we needed from people. And that was to be colorblind during that time, you know. And if you look at the things that Sidney Poitier even said then, and even Martin Luther King, like, don't judge me by the color of my skin, by the content of my character, right? Sidney Poitier talking about, you know, don't see me as a black man, I want you to see me as a man, you know. 
And he was right at that time, too, where, you know, black men especially were infantilized and called boy and always seen not only as less than a man, but as less than human. And the fight to be just seen as a human being that had the same problems and issues and goals and things as any other human being was fundamental, was a fundamental request at that time. And so it's interesting when you look at Poitier and you look at his portrayals and you look at his words, to see it in that context, I think, is important. Because it's funny how the context has changed now, where we've gone from wanting color blindness to wanting people to be color aware, which is kind of interesting, you know, if you look at it, where, you know, the demand is that you can't understand my experience because it's a black experience. And and the the points of view are from being a person of color has a you know has a different path than maybe other people had where before it was like no 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 we are all in the same thing we don't want you to look at color now it's a little different it's like no we've had a different experience and you need to be aware of the <laughs> of how color has affected that if we're going to go forward isn't that isn't that interesting so one of the things i'm going to talk about this year um, on Black in the Air, is that issue and how it affects us. Uh, the color-aware age that we're in now instead of the color-blind era that, you know, Mr. Poitier um, was a large figure in. It's kind of interesting. <sighs> it's funny. Uh, it's funny to start the new year off with this in terms of when we think how far race relations have come, especially in the time of Sidney Poitier, he first became uh, aware in the public eye, you know, in the mid fifties, right around the time that the Emmett Till incident happened. Emmett Till was a young black kid from Chicago who was down in the South. White woman claimed that he whistled at her. He was then lynched. And uh, I think years later, I think she recanted or something, right? Recently or whatever. Mother had the open casket to show how horribly her son was beaten. And it pretty much kind of, at least from an emotional and spiritual point of view, started the civil rights, the modern civil rights movement, the Emmett Till incident, right? So um, that's when Sidney Poitier's career pretty much started, right around that same time. So it is interesting, on his death, we have this Ahmed Arbery trial, Ahmed Arbery, the young black kid in Georgia, in the South, who pretty much was chased and hunted down by these white guys and uh, ended up uh, killing him in cold blood. So many years ago, <laughs> I doubt if this ever would have gone to trial. Almost didn't go to trial now, right? Uh, because one of them was stupid enough to videotape it, the guy following, you know, which thank God we have evidence like that because these things never even come to trial. But what's fascinating about this is that not only were these all three men found guilty, they were given life in prison. I was shocked by that. Life in prison. That shit never happens for something like that. I mean, that is amazing to me. And once again, this is in Georgia. And we have to say that that is some progress, that something like that can happen. And... I wanted to share with you before uh, we go into the interview is 
something that the judge said, which to me is fascinating, and I'm actually going to play it for you. I've never seen this before. This judge was amazing to me. Um, he actually called for a moment of silence when he was sentencing sentencing these people uh, to kind of contextualize uh, the time that Ahmaud Arbery was being chased. And the power of this moment is really, really interesting. So I want you guys to hear it, and we'll end with this, and then we'll get into our interview. I mentioned this today about the time period, but I do want to put that time period in context. And the only way I could think to do so may be a little theatrical, but I think it's appropriate. I want us all get a concept of time. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit silently for one minute. And that one minute... represents a fraction of the time that Ahmaud Arbery was running in Satilla Shores. That's approximately a minute. Again, the chase that occurred in Satilla Shores occurred over about a five-minute period. Wow. Guys, think about that. That is a white judge in the South demanding respect for a black body. Whew. Wow. God bless you, Judge. A moment of silence for that, and a moment of silence for Sidney Poitier. Wow. Um, All right, that's all I got. We'll be right back with Prentice Penny. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life, with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. All right, everybody. Bringing in the new year. Helping me do it. He's your boy from Insecure. He's the man that has brought us five magical seasons of uh, the show. I was... Uh, fortunate enough to be a part of myself and uh, wrapping it up in fine fashion a couple of weeks ago. And for those of you that haven't seen it, you have to see the finale. And by the way, it's very bingeable, the whole series. If you haven't seen it, start now and binge it. 
But uh, we have on the show, to start off our new year the right way, my old pal, Prentice Penny, the showrunner of Insecure. Prentice, welcome to Black on the Air. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too, man. It's so nice uh, to talk to you. I just uh, saw Prentice recently. We did a panel discussion in December with some other writers, and it was so much fun. And I was like, man, I just love talking to Prentice. It's so interesting. <laughs> you know, you really are. Like, I, I like, I love your Twitter feed, too, because you have so much enthusiasm <laughs> for what you do. And it's so, it's smart, but it's also, it's like a kid who, He's so lucked out that he got to work in the candy shop, you know, and he's telling us, yo, guys, we got Tootsie Rolls this week. I got to you won't believe the I didn't even know we were going to get Tootsie Rolls this week. Let me tell you. And let me tell you how long I've loved Tootsie Rolls. You know, like that's what your Twitter feed is to me. <laughs> that's so, that's so accurate. That's so accurate. <laughs> you know, your your love of what you do is so infectious, but it's also it's fiercely intelligent and thought through and very sensitive too. You have everything as far as I'm concerned, just to be just a really solid artist, man. So congrats. Uh, my hat off to you, my friend. Thank you, man. Thank you. No, it's so such a blessing to be able to do this. And, you know, like I dreamed for so long to even, and I think about like ways that like, like I would have loved to like have these kind of conversations with you online. Like when I was, coming up right and to just to hear your process or mara's process or anybody it's just absolutely oh, that tool was so great in that way yeah it really is uh it's so great to be able just to hear how people think i used to when i was starting out i bought so many books Prentice, of wanting to hear how people what their creative process was like those directors on directing and those kind of things, you know, writers on writing. It was so, it was so cool to, to read that and just hear the processes of how people's minds work, not just see the finished product, but what's the, what's the deconstruction of that? Like what went into the thinking of that? Did, did you do that type of thing when you were coming up as well? Did you like that? Absolutely. Like to your point, I used, uh, Spike Lee used to put these books out. Yeah. That when it was like his journal of like making, she's got to have it in school days. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And I used to just read those things religiously, repetitively. And so to a point, because I didn't even know there was a film school. Then he would talk about going to NYU film school. And I was like, oh, man, there's a there's an actual college. There's that's a film school? <laughs> it was a film school. I thought you just went to college and like major in English and then just, I don't know, figure this shit out. So right. to, for him to talk about the process of like, you know, he's talking about the way he would make the movie or dealing with studio execs like Don Steele at Columbia. You know, you're just like, who is Don Steele? Like, why, who is this person? And so yeah. he just filled you in on like why he was doing certain shots or why he was writing the characters this way or what was the process of even to see a script. He would put the script in the book. I didn't even know how a script looked. I didn't know what a script looked like, you know. Mm -hmm. So it was just so helpful just from a brass tack standpoint. And he was not that far removed from my age. I mean, he was like 24, 25. So I was at the time like 16. So it's not even like, here's, you know, some old director who's like telling me how it was, you know, you know, Spartacus. It's like, oh, this is a guy who's like, where's Jordan? Right. You know, and it's like- Although to hear what Kubrick had to say about Spartacus would have been amazing too, you know? <laughs> yeah. That would have been great too. That would have been great too. <laughs> but it, it was just very relatable and he was black. So there was so many things that were yeah. just so obviously filling me in on that I didn't know. Well, let's start from there. I was going to start with the show, but let's just start with your journey. Because was that a time in your life? You mentioned being 16. Did you, were you thinking about showbiz then? Or was it, were you just 
unconsciously being influenced by things and just wondering what you wanted to do. How, how young were you when you first thought about doing this type of thing? I mean, I always loved television. Like growing right. up, like my parents were divorced. So it was a lot of like yeah. sit down in front of a TV. Yeah. And That's a big party. We're so many of us are in that one, man. Yeah. You know, yeah. so uh, so I just grew up watching. You know, this is '80s TV. So you're talking, you know, different strokes, facts of life, all those sort of classic Cosby, all those sort of classic shows. And um, so I always loved TV. My dad side of the family was super funny. So you had to. Mm -hmm. be willing to bring it. I stuttered a lot as a kid, so I had to be able to bag back. So I was always around certainly very funny people, I thought, growing up as a kid. And um, so, but I didn't really know how you transitioned. I, I didn't know any. I'm from L.A., but I, I didn't know anybody who did yeah. or had any connection to it. There was and nobody in your family that was in showbiz or that type of thing. None. None. Mm -hmm. The closest connection was my grandmother's, my step-grandmother's niece was the black woman on Price is Right, the model who would be like, do that was my closest connection. Oh, wow. Price is Right model. Uh, nice. But I didn't even know her like that. You know, it's like a step person. Uh, right, right. So I didn't know. So that was the closest thing. And it really wasn't until Spike came out that I was like, oh, this is like, because, you know, you don't know back in the day, it wasn't like you knew who showrunners were. And most of the showrunners for those shows were, even for black shows, were white people. So it wasn't like, you know, like I think that I knew, I knew Norman Lear. That's who I knew was like, sure. person, right? Like everybody. But again, he's like a, still a white guy doing most, you know, shows that people yeah, color. And they're kind of unattainable names that are out yeah. there. They seem like fixed figures in the universe. Yeah, it was like him and Aaron Spelling, you know, because you yeah, yes, love exactly. those are all the dynasty, all those, all those shows. So it just felt over there, very over there. And so really mm -hmm. it was Spike that sort of made it feel like achievable. But I still didn't really know mm -hmm. still what it what it was. And I remember I took a, a friend of mine when I was in high school, there was like a USC had like a, a two-week film workshop for high school kids. Mm -hmm. And it just happened to be on like the like our guidance counselors, like, you know, like little boards in high school where they put up announcements and things like that. And I had just mentioned, like, I wanted to do movies one day. And my friend just said, hey, pulled the flyer for me and was like, here's this thing. And I was like, what's this? And so I, my mom called and you got to stay on campus for two weeks and you got to like go to classes and you got to go to like, I went to a Cheers taping. That's when I realized Ted Danson was bald because he didn't have his hairpiece in there. Yes, that's and I was right. like, oh shit, Sam is bald. <laughs> that's <laughs> so funny. And uh, so it was, so it was like being around a set that was like, like we went to like a, like a rehearsal talking to like having, you know, teachers teaching you about film. Mm. And I was just like for two weeks and I was like, oh, this is all like I want to do forever at that point and then it just became very i was like i gotta go to this school um and so that's really when it kind of clicked was like the summer of 1990 it was like okay i want to do this like for real for real that's so powerful you know when that's one of those divine interventions you know because uh, i think there are all kinds of interventions that can put you on the road to things you know yeah but the that one is always interesting to me because you it collides just at the right time in your life. But it's very powerful to be able to see something up close with your own eyes to know that it's something you can do, right? Like, totally. And also, it was the summer John was filming Boys in the Hood because he had just graduated. So they were talking about this, like, young Black filmmaker that had literally yeah. just graduated. And I was like, I was going into my senior year of high school, and I was like... Yeah, like you said, to the point of things kind of colliding in very specific ways. It was like, oh man, a guy just left here and is doing a movie at a studio. That's yeah. that's wow. That and he's black and he's young. It was just one of those things where it just all, like you said, seeing with my own. And again, I grew up, you know, ten minutes from USC. 
but it was again it was like seeing it up close experiencing it up close being in the energy around other kids that want to do that was just yeah it was really just that sort of perfect storm of moments so you went to to usc then mm -hmm. after that and yeah. coming out of USC, what was your break into the actual professional side of it? Because people, I ask you these questions because I know people who want to get in the showbiz, they're so fascinated with these stories, and rightly so, because everybody's journey is different. What, how did you crack that? Because it is different, right, Prentice, of, oh, of just totally. wanting to do it and existing in that world and actually just bursting through some kind of way. Yeah, yeah it was an amazing nine-year overnight success yeah, yeah yeah great that's awesome please talk about that yeah nine years to to get that job nine years to get my wow. first thing on girlfriends it took um so initially it was i graduated and tv wasn't like how it is now and usc certainly didn't have the tv i think usc had two tv classes and i took one of them it's more it was more into its film aspect super film right. super film tv i mean it's that you know this is 95 you know tv at the time to movies was like oh if you're doing tv that's like the stepchild of, of movies right and so i just wasn't like that and so i was like okay i'm gonna do an indie film that's like the move right now ed norton had i mean not uh ed burns and robert rodriguez and all that was coming out mm -hmm. and like like half plenty all these sort of you know independent black movies or, or independent movies period that didn't crack I got a job at um, Disney for their theme park division as a writer uh, for a couple of years. Like that was a cool experience. That's interesting. Yeah. And then I was uh, Tim Story was my mentor at USC when I was in film school. So I used to write his music videos for like a year when he was directing music videos and he went to go do barbershop. And then I was just sort of like bouncing around. But what I realized was I was really afraid to write television, like mm. definitely afraid. And the reason why my mind and I was kind of self-sabotaging was because I was like, oh, I got to be in a room with like other writers. And like, what if I'm not good enough? <laughs> right. I'll be exposed. <laughs> I'll be exposed. And I was like, I've had this dream since I was like 1990. So like the thought that like, it's not my path was just crushing. I, I just couldn't, it was, I just couldn't get past it. So I avoided writing TV for a long time. And mm. then I was like, I was like, okay, I think this is what I want to do. But I was like, I'm not really know how to write a TV spec. I don't know anything about television. So it was humbling. I had to go take UCLA extension classes to learn how to write TV specs and to write them faster. I wanted to learn how to like, not, you know, like young writers agonize for 10 months over my yeah. spec, you know? And, but that was humbling. Cause I was like, I gotta go tell people I'm going back to school. I already went to school. And was there any moment during that where you felt like quitting, where you felt like you know, I don't know if this is going to work out. Or were you discouraged at all by family or that type of thing? And Prentice, you know, it's time to get a real job. I, I definitely have my grandfather who was like, Prentice, if it's not happening by now, <laughs> like, <laughs> what are we doing? Uh -huh. uh, but I didn't feel like I wanted to give up. I just felt I had to overcome my own, like, pride and my mm -hmm. own, like, telling people in person, even though I went to a really good film school, telling them I have to go back to school. That to, that part to me was like such an ego. Yeah, that I had to like humble that part, um, and also get jobs. Jobs like I was like I don't want any like close to entertainment jobs. I want to just like do jobs that I don't give a shit about if I get fired, and I can just kind of control my own schedule because this is what I need to do now. And so I was like a substitute teacher. I was a tutor at a group home. I worked at a nonprofit. And what I didn't realize at the time, like all these things were helping me, mm -hmm. one, become a man and like stand on my own two feet, even if they were like crappy jobs and I didn't want right. to do them. 
I felt pride in that I got up every day doing something I didn't want to do to know that there was like a goal that I didn't know when that goal would be hit, but I could stand on my own two feet and be like, I'm doing it though. Right. There, it, there was something about being like, to me, that was like, I'm leaving, I'm leaving being a kid. This yeah, is like, right. this is like grown man who like, I got to take care of my kids, but I got to be a garbage man, but I don't want to be a garbage man, but I'm believing you're going to go to college. You know, it's like that kind of like, it's not about me right now. And so, but it took three years and, and you'll appreciate this. So, you know, back then, this is like 2001, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't like off cycle shows. It was like pilots, you know, pilots get shot in January. That's right. You get picked up, you start in May. And there's no like off cycle show. That's the yep, run. That and was it. It's that window of hiring. Good luck. That's just kind of what it is. And there used to be this book called the Hollywood Creative Directory, which I don't know if you remember the Hollywood. I remember that book. Sure. Okay. So I used to go to Samuel French on Sunset. I remember book, that. Right. Yeah. So this is like. And there many times. I would go get my Hollywood Creative Directory because the Writers Guild had the trainee program. Mm-hmm. So I would go through this book and, you know, I was caught. I would call every show. Are you guys doing it? And of course, the white show is like, we don't even know what this program is. <laughs> like, we don't, we're not doing this at all. And sometimes, and I didn't, I wasn't just adept at like knowing when the cycle was when people were hiring and this. And, and you had no agent or anything no like agent, that, right? No, no, just no, really, like, really crawling at, with baby steps, right? Man, I'm cold calling like somebody trying to sell you a vacuum cleaner. I'm just like, wow. I would call every season. Somebody would say, oh, we just hired somebody. But most people would be like, we're not doing it. So then that was my, that was my whole week. I would just be calling shows like, and the book is huge. It's so thick. And if I missed the window and I did that for three years and no luck, no luck, no luck, every cycle. And then it really wasn't to that, to your point of perfect storm. It really wasn't until my wife went to a barbecue for, she went to Spelman and there was another writer there who had just got her started on Girlfriends, Karen Gist. I don't know if you know, like, you know, absolutely. Okay. So Karen had just started on Girlfriends. And was like, I'll read his stuff. This was like three years ago. So for three years, I would just develop this relationship with Karen. I'd send her stuff. She'd give me notes. And then one year, I wrote a Scrubs three years later. And she was like, this is really good. I think Mara's doing the program this year. I'm going to give this to Mara. At the same time, my cousin worked in real estate and she was selling Mara a house. Wow. wow. And my cousin was like, hey, my cousin told Mara, my cousin. And this is Mara Brock-Akil. Mara Brock-Akil, who created Girlfriends and the game and and all these other shows. And my cousin said, Mara was like, well, who's your cousin? I'm sure she was like, I don't want to do this shit. So she was like, no, it's really good. You should read it. So she gave Mara the script. And Mara, when she opened it, she had just gotten Karen's script from so she was like, two people are giving me this same script. I, maybe I should read this. And she read it and she interviewed me for the trainee. So I graduated in 95 and I got my first thing in 2004. That's amazing. Yeah. Just so much persistence and the belief that you must have had. And you just dropped that little bomb in there. Oh, my wife. Wait, hold on a second. You were married during that time when you were taking these classes. I was. I, I was I was engaged. I got engaged 2002, but I was taking classes in 2001. And my wife was a full attorney, like a prosecutor for the- As we like to say, you married up. Oh, very <laughs> much up. Very much up. But she had faith in you. She allowed you to follow that dream. Then. Yeah. But here, here's what's interesting. The same summer that you talk about like divine intervention, the same summer I took that film class at USC when I was in high school, I had just met her three weeks prior. And uh-huh. I told her, I'm going to, I want to go make movies. I'm going to go do this thing at USC. So I met my wife in 1990 when she was in high school. 
So she had known, oh, this is something that he's going to do, even though we weren't together. You know, she went to Spelman in D.C. But when we got back together, that dream wasn't like weirdly like a new thought. She was like, oh, yeah, this is like what you're always supposed to do because you told me this at 16. So like she may have seen it more clearer than you probably might have in some ways (laughs) manifesting. That's so amazing. And now so you've made it you you've broken in and I always feel like breaking in is the hardest part. You know, there's staying in is one thing, but breaking in really is tough. You know, finding that one thing. And I want people to hear your story because that level of persistence, man, it's so important that belief in yourself, you know, it's, it, it, it is. And I say this too, like this business really sifts the wheat. Yeah. You're not kidding. <laughs> people say they want to do it. And I go like, Hey, like, you know, there's lots of writers, like yes. writing in Hollywood. Isn't the only way, like you can be, have a great career writing, plays in your town like you do, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to equate to like moving here and do it like right. not, not, not everybody's built for it and it's just not everybody's journey right it doesn't absolutely have to be this or that so i always like don't unless you're really committed to being like i'm moving here and i'm not leaving until it pops off if you're not like almost committed at that base level then like it's okay it's absolutely okay it doesn't have to define you as a person i've always been very practical about it you know, uh, especially in terms of myself, like when people would ask me, Larry, what is your advice um, becoming a professional writer? And my advice always was get paid for writing, you know, <laughs> and like, but what does that mean? That's how you become a professional writer. You yep. actually get paid to write. And what does that mean? You could, I said, I started getting paid just for writing jokes, you know, but I was doing stand up, and I always, I, some of my fellow comics, I'd see their act and I just couldn't help myself, you know, and I'd say, hey, what if you did this? What if you did that? You know, and after a while, a couple of people wanted to pay me for jokes. And I was like, well, I guess I'm a professional writer. Yeah. I'm getting paid I'm getting to write paid. jokes. Yes. But there's something about someone departing with their money to, get, you know, giving it to you and you having to deliver something, which takes it yeah. out of the realm of opinion that friends may have or even your ego of saying, I know this is good, you know, said, no, 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 it's got nothing to do with that. Now Now somebody's paying for it. It's a whole different arena. When you're a professional, your relationship to what you're doing becomes a little different. And your approach to it, I think also has to be different too, right? Because now you're saying, Oh, I have to like deliver on things. I have to be, I don't say like regimented to to that degree, but I certainly have to be respectful and responsible to the craft in a different way. And like, oh, I'm going to wake up and write whenever I feel like it. It's like, that's not what being a professional writer is at all. No. And it has nothing to do with a passion project type of thing, which a lot of people who don't do it think that that's where it comes from. No, it really is a a punching clock type of thing. It is. Because you may be working on a show that you're not that connected to. You know, it's not necessarily your cup of tea, but as a professional, you have to imbue the opinions of the person doing that show. You have to take on their opinions and make them your own and write towards that thing, you know, and whatever gifts you have, you put those gifts into writing for their thing. Like, especially in television, that's what professional writer does is you, you bring to the table the something at the service of that thing. I learned this very early on when I was working with Mara. I learned a few things, which was like, she she was amazing and so gracious. Mm -hmm. Was that one, I always learned like, oh, I'm not necessarily wrong. That person is not wrong. It's just, this is the way the showrunner wants to do it. It's like, if it was my show, I would do it this way. If it was that person's show, they'd do it that way. So it's so subjective of like choices, right? And I also learned that like a showrunner to me is essentially a painter. 
and all the writers in the rooms, I, I try to tell this to young writers and all the writers are colors. And your job is just to be available that. to be blue. The blue doesn't go, why is the painter not using blue today? <laughs> blue doesn't stop being blue. Like, what's up with orange? What's up with orange? I want to be more orange. Blue I is just here. like, hey, if you want to use blue, I'm here. Or or maybe the painter's like, you know what? I need a lot of orange, but the blue, I'm gonna use a little bit of blue because that's gonna just set the color off right. So if the writer goes, the showrunner's like, I don't really, I like that person because their story sense for this story is more interesting. But more jokes are gonna help cut this a different way. But you don't necessarily know it's in the like the colors don't know what's in the painter's head. So the colors job is just to be available to be colors. And so once I try to say like, hey, so when it's your show, because the last thing you want on your show is for you to be the painter and your blue is being like, I'm not blue today. (laughs) I don't feel like being blue. I'm going to just sit up here. And since you don't want to use me in the last two paintings, I don't want to be available. That's not how it works. No, 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 no. Uh, I also want to talk about your journey and what's interesting about it too. And I know this is going to sound weird to people, but it's just a fact. Like you started working on what we'll call a black show, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's conceived by a black show runner, mainly black writers on it. There's not necessarily the shows in about black, but there's there's the being a black person in America is in the DNA yep. of the show, you know, and that's what you're doing. But your career, you know, you go to work on what I call a white show, you know, or white shows. <laughs> I love that it's in quotes. <laughs> There's no quotes. They were white. <laughs> yes. And you know what I mean. I know where what you mean. Yeah, of course. The point of view is, is you know, different here. There's there's what they call mainstream as opposed to urban. Right. You know, that's how they used to talk about it. Right. They used to call black shows urban. It's urban. And, yeah, so the other's mainstream. You know. It's like, well, friends is urban. Don't they? Yeah, I would say urban's a city, right? <laughs> It's like, is there, is there a rural? Is there a rural show? I don't know. Is it Green Acres? Is it <laughs> yeah, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. I wish there were a black rural show. That would be great. That would be awesome. <laughs> um, so what was it like for you at that point? And let me preface it by this. Like, And I've never really told this to my audience. I've told it to friends. But I have, for me as a person, I was always keenly aware of being a black person in a business that wasn't necessarily opening its arms for black writers in all the spaces, yeah. right? Particularly what I call the white spaces. In the black spaces, it was different. Yeah. But like a white writer, let me tell the audiences, like if you're a white writer, very easy for you to work on a black show. In fact, many times white writers run, ran black shows. But a black writer, it was rare for you to work on what is a white show. My friend Saladin Patterson is doing the great Wonder Years right now, worked on Frasier, for a while and that was huge for yeah, us. That was like huge. shit saladin's on frazier like that shit <laughs> never happened in fact famously my friend john bowman who just passed yeah. away uh god rest his soul john who who uh, uh co-created martin and ran martin and john who was white and great guy he worked on the living color really funny great guy um he did a show called the show and i worked on it john ridley was on it and some of us and 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 Bowman ran Murphy Brown for a while, and he tried to get Ridley on Murphy Brown, and it didn't happen. Wow. Here's John Ridley, future Oscar winner, you know. It doesn't surprise me, but it, that's why. Crazy. That's why. That's how ridiculous it was. So I consciously wanted to be in what I call white spaces, you know. I felt like me being in white spaces is as powerful as doing our show's you know, I thought both of those were powerful, but being in white spaces, I felt, was very important, mm-hmm. you know, to have, to get that cross respect, yeah. you know, that type of thing, you know, but yeah. it was something that I was always conscious of. So, so when you're in these spaces for you, 
did you have a mindset there? Did you realize, oh man, it's important for me to be on a show like uh, uh, Happy Endings or you know these types of shows and to get that respect? How, how did that feel to you? You know, to go back a little further, like you know, you don't know, like to, like to your point, like you don't know what you're being prepared for coming right. up. And so I remember when my parents divorced, my dad was very, very, my dad was like anything black, that's what you, that's all you're going to do with black stuff. And my mom was very much if it's white, it's right, right? So mm-hmm. during the summer, my mom would, I went to a black elementary school, but I had to do white camps, summer camps and sports. So mm-hmm. I would go to this white summer camp in the Valley where I was like the only black kid. Like they put a hat on me for the brochure to take the hat off. It looks like the brochure has like a bunch of black kids. It's like, oh my God. It was wild, Larry. And this is that, you know, this is early eighties. So I was the only, so for seven summers, I was the only black kid at this camp. Fast forward film school. I'm the only black person besides Poppy Hanks, who's over at Macro now in my film class. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I, I know what it's like. I don't like that I'm the only black person in these spaces, but I'm not, I don't, it doesn't, you know, threaten me or right. intimidate me to go into those worlds. So when, 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 when Girlfriends was canceled, like really because of the writer's strike, and we always knew it was our last year, that's, you know, the writer's strike happened. They started canceling all these, you know, urban shows. And, right. and so it wasn't like you had a lot of choices of where you could go to some degree. And so when I got on my first, what I would say, like my first white show was, it was interesting because I was always like, I don't say, I don't say intimidate is the wrong word, but like, oh man, what's that going to be like? Right. Mm-hmm. Like it was only my second show. I had been on Girlfriends for four years. So I, this was like a home. And many times, like when black writers were on white shows and the, the reason why Solidine was so important, because there was no black character on that show, yeah. you know, but many times if there was a black character in the show, they loved having like maybe a black writer so they could get a little flavor, you know? <laughs> You come in the right. Oh, finally! Oh, we got a little seasoning we can put on this now. Thank you, Black Rider, for that. That's so accurate. So a little bit of sauce. Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Sprinkle some of that on that. Uh, (laughs) uh, uh, Don't pix the story. Just, just give us a little seasoning. Don't even write for these characters. We got this. (laughs) Leave the white characters alone. We got that. We got that. You focus on Jethro. But I was just, I was like. You know, what's it going to be like? Obviously, you know, all these white writers from and there were writers mm-hmm. on that show from like Friends and, and other shows that were big mm-hmm. Will and Grace. And I was like, man, this is mm-hmm. oh, shit. What's this going to feel like? And the second I got in there, I was like, those writers were all funny and talented for sure. But I was like, oh, I'm more than prepared. Like after that, started, I was like, oh, yeah, I'd be like, I got this. I got this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys take the black character. I got the rest. <laughs> yeah. I got this exactly. You real, you realize you you belong in a space that people have said you don't really belong in it, and and for you, the clarity of that is very powerful for a lot of us writers that came up at a certain time because agents would feel differently, executives would feel differently, even if it's not conscious. Believe me, that bias was underneath there. There's a certain feeling about black writers not being up to snuff with white writers. I could talk for hours on this subject, but. You know, but the clarity, what's powerful about it, the reason why I brought it up is because for you, it gives you a different type of clarity about the fact that you fucking belong in this business as much as anybody else belongs. Yep. Right? Yep. A hundred percent. It just made the confidence go, oh, yeah, this is fun. And again, they're all talented, but they weren't more talented than the people 
I had just right. worked with, right? And so right. what what was galvanizing to me and very clear though was access to stuff to the point you're making, right? Because when right. I was on Girlfriends for four years, you know, obviously Mara had the game, but it's her show. But I think right. like Karen had a pilot one year, but nobody was in like big overall deals. Nobody was doing like pilots every year. Correct. And when I would on that show, I was hearing writers go, I don't know. I may renew my overall. It's been four yes, years. Yes. I might, I might go to staff Sony. writers. Oh, yes. like, so like oh, I got yes. two pilots. I was just hearing conversations. Yes. It, it, it made it very clear that like we're the Negro leagues. This is the major leagues. Right. And the access to things over here is just so much more that I was just hearing conversations and things that I just wasn't hearing on my previous show, which just goes, Oh, they weren't. Cause if you think about a show, like girlfriends that did 180 episodes. You, I can't imagine a white show that would do 180 episodes of a show, and every writer in that show wouldn't be in a deal if it was Thank Friends, you. Seinfeld. They would be Absolutely. deals. I mean, I know writers that. I mean, I, and I'm sure you do too. That were on Seinfeld that are stealing deals 20 years later. That have Absolutely. never made a show. I'll go even further. I created an Emmy Award winning show <laughs> called The PJs. With Steve Tompkins, he got a huge overall deal. They said for me, we'd love to see Larry write something on his own. That's what I heard. So, you know, you know, all those things. Right. And so. Oh, absolutely. And, and so really, it's just until now when I look up and I see, which is so great, is so many black showrunners in overall deals, because, again, they weren't they just weren't happening at that time. And so that's what it really showed me. And then that's when I sort of did my like my my white marathon of show. But to that point, what it also yes. showed me, right, is like it should just show me so much about the game. And it showed me when you mm -hmm. get in there and show me how people really get jobs in this business. Yeah. is you get jobs through relationships and friends and that's what that's how i got every single job w once i left girlfriends and i went to show all my white shows was somebody was like you gotta hire oh my my buddy got a show you gotta hire him jonathan groff was you know co helping to run scrubs and he was helping mm -hmm. to run happy endings so he was like come do punch up with me over yeah. happy endings and I, saw, I was like of course it was literally just i was on this show he liked yep. me come work on this show over here i mean that's just it just showed me how the game is played. Like it's all yeah. like bring it. And that's what he did when we were on Scrubs. He brought four writers from Scrubs onto Happy Endings right away. So it was mm -hmm. like, oh, that's how that's how it happens. You know, it's like being in a room where it happens. You're like, okay. That's right. I see. And as you know, you're like, oh, that's how it happens. It's all relational. You know, that's when I learned too, that like, the game isn't so systemic either race. It's like it's not like the they're 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 actively trying to keep us out. They're just not actively thinking about us because we're not in those rooms. So if you're not in those exactly. rooms exactly, but that's the process. It goes, well, I'm gonna hire my friends because I yeah. I'm, like I'm getting my show up. I'm scared that I want to have writers I trust. And I work with these writers on these shows. I trust them. So let me bring four of those writers over here. Well if the room only has seven slots and four of them go to your buddies. Well, then there you go, right? I mean, that's just the, the game. The actual most pernicious type of racism that always existed in the business was what I called invisibility. Because many of the writers we're talking about and many of the people in showbiz, they're not bad people. No. You know, they're well-meaning people. And good. You're just fucking invisible, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it really is. You know, for the most part, you know, I, especially when you talk the generational changes, you know? And that's what I meant about being in white spaces, to have our examples where it starts cracking that, you know, and yeah. you mentioned somebody like Jonathan Groff, who's one of the best guys in the business, yeah. who I actually hired on Blackish. Yeah, I know. You hired on Blackish. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually hired Jonathan too. He's just a great guy. He was yeah. a Jeopardy champ or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But there's that, you know, there's having those examples be more and more, which I think has been 
one of the turning points in the last 15 years for me of what I've seen in the business, because the next step to that, and this is part of your journey too, is who gets to have the keys to the car now? I have to tell you, and I told you this once before, that it did my heart good when you were going to be the showrunner for Insecure, you know? And what I mean by that is that you got to have the keys. And I was like, yes, because that shit, and I said, that shit doesn't happen. This is a premium cable show, you guys. Black showrunners don't get the chance to do what you just saw Prentice do the last five years. You know, it's an anomaly. You know, it's it's going to happen now more. But at the time, you know, this, those doors weren't open. You know, they just weren't open, you know. I think, I think you even mentioned that they were wanting to bring in somebody white in the beginning. I'm sure they did, yeah. you know. And if we go back to that for a second, because let's talk about Insecure now, you know. And uh, I just have one thing that I have to clear <laughs> for the audience beginning. Because uh, some people were asking me, they saw the, I think, the documentary on it. And they said, how come Larry Wilmore's name wasn't mentioned in it? You know, we didn't see Larry. So I just want to say, yes, I was, I co-wrote the pilot with yes. Issa, even yes. though you don't hear my name being mentioned. And uh, there was a moment in that first season that uh, we had talked about on stage, which you didn't even know about, where... HBO was kind of, uh, man, we like these scripts, but uh, there's just something missing. And they actually called me and asked if I would uh, give them, you know, my take on this. And I was doing the nightly show at the time. You know, it was so hard for me to be engaged the way I would have liked to. But I read all the scripts. I think you guys had written like six at the time. Yeah, I think we're up to like five or six. Yeah. So I read all the scripts, printers, and then I read all the notes to the to those scripts. And then I read all of your guys' rewrites to those notes, you know. And then for me... I was just thinking, oh, you know, you know, I was saying, Issa just, she just needs to be thrown against the wall faster in these episodes. You know, you got to get her in trouble. You know, I was using more graphic language than that, you know. And so my basic note was just move this shit up earlier, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I remember to your guys' credit, I think you rewrote like those first six episodes or something. We wrote back because it was such a great note, right? Because you're building a show, right? And so you're like... Right. What's the like, what's the evolution of this? And it was like, all the stuff that was like the midway stuff was happening episode right. six, seven, and eight, right? Right. And to your point, it was like get her in the paint her in a corner faster, right? Get yes. her there, which was so like duh. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, we should. And 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 so what we did was we had one late, and I was fully convinced I was about to be fired. I was like, oh, they're about to fire me. Oh no, no. Oh man. In my mind, I was like, Issa wrote it with yeah. Mary. So they greenlit that. What's the new fly in the ointment? You know, you just hear those stories all the time about people being replaced. And my yes. deal was set up where they were like, okay, you can run the pilot, but that doesn't guarantee you run the series. Or you run the first uh, season, it doesn't mean you're guaranteed to run the second. I had all these if-come deals, right? All so the you're like on a trial all oh, the yeah, time. Oh, yeah, constantly. Uh, and I walked away uh, from, I walked away from, you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine where I was making good network money and I'm making right. no money. I could have been on that white show, yo. I was, I was going to go back to that white show. <laughs> Y'all treat me like this. Nice <laughs> cushy hours. <laughs> like, <Right>. Great. <laughs> you know, 24 episodes. I exactly. Know. It's called residuals, motherfuckers. Resi prime time residuals. Eight. Fuck you and your eight. <laughs> and so I was just like, oh, I'm about to be fired. And you just hear those oh, stories. Man. And uh, and so I was like, well, look, if I'm going to get fired. I'm going to go out doing this the best way I can. Yeah. 
Um, because also there's no guarantee, but even, and even when I, when we, when we, like we had our night, we said, okay, great. Let's move everything up. Now, what do we do? And it was the one night that we actually worked pretty like midnight, one o'clock Like we were grinding. Cause we had to like figure out, cause that, and the next day we had to pitch it to Casey and Amy who were the execs at HBO and we had to reconceive and restructure like, is when, sure. it was when we created the character Tasha. So many great things happened off of yes, out doing of that. that one moment, yes. doing that one thing that then, and that's when we figured out the rest of the season. Like what people see in season one is that night of work of wow. ramming it all up. And then, and that's actually when we started again, things you learn on the road. Like when I was on Brooklyn nine, nine, uh, because we were always behind the eight ball of like trying to figure out what the show was. Yep. We would room write episodes. So you would Frankenstein scenes. So you'd say, yes. Okay. Prentice, you're going to write two scenes. You're going to write, and yep. we're going to get a script in a day or like four hours. Like we're going to get a script super fast. And because we were behind and we had, kind of, I don't say wasted time, but because we had written those other scripts, we were up into production and we had to have all the scripts written before we started. That right. I was like, we don't have time to send writers off for like five days to do a draft. No, no, we don't have we time got, for that. So I was like, do this I'm like, we don't die if we do that. So because <laughs> yeah. we had already used that time, right? And right. so I said, Correct. I'm gonna do what we did on this other show. We're gonna just Frankenstein these things. We're gonna like mm-hmm. hey, you're gonna write two scenes. And then we just did it. And then that became how we wrote the whole seat, like the whole series. Every series after that was written that way, where we would all Frankenstein scripts. Mm-hmm. So when people would say, oh, I know this script has this thing. I was like, there's no way for you to know. It is, yes, it is, yes. a, it is a hot dog of talent. But that's where that came from. But it was, again, having more experiences on other shows just taught me things that I could almost like Swiss Army knife, right? I'm Absolutely. taking this from Mara or taking this from this show or taking this from that show that I just don't know how I would have solved that problem not having all those other experiences. I think it's great. You... All of that prepared you for that moment. You know, uh, another lesson that I think is important for writers to know, once again, professional writers is, you know, don't just think of writing. Real writing happens in rewriting as far as I'm concerned, you know, and and having to look at the story, get your ego out of it. Look at a story. Is it giving you what it needs to do? And if it doesn't, it's okay to lose things, guys. It's okay to knock things out and and put the thing in that is going to make it alive. You know, you want you want something to be alive and to and to be living and not just be fancy words in your head. You know, on girlfriends, the things that I think Mara was she'd excelled at so many things, but I think one of the things that she was really smart at, we would rarely throw a story out because we would like spend so much time really getting in the nooks and crannies of stuff, right? So by the time we went to the script. It was pretty like thought through, but on whereas on Brooklyn, we might be coming to stuff much faster and we would get to a thing and be like, that's not right. But that was the best thing I learned from Mike Shore and those guys, they were like, like, and like chuck it then. Like just like almost yeah. unapologetic, like lose everything. Like I remember exactly. the first season we'd write like almost like three or four drafts of every script. So you're talking, you know, it was 24 episodes. So we we're writing like a hundred and, you know, not like Absolutely. 90 episodes essentially because we'd write an episode, throw it out, write an episode, throw it out. And that told me, oh, it's okay. And I used to be like, what are we doing? But Completely it also okay. taught me, it, that's not sustainable, but it taught me don't be precious. Like if you have to lose literally exactly. everything, lose it all. And, and there's an extreme to that. You don't want to be, writing like that all the time of course you know but sometimes you have emergencies where you just have to be able to do that was that the moment where do you think you feel you and Issa started because I'm going to assume you guys shared a brain for most of this was that the moment your brains kind of fused you think I think it was our moment 
for sure of because the first season we were like talking about things of like are there pops in this show are there not pop mm-hmm. like what is the show conceptually what is it because right. you know even from the pilot all the voiceover left so we were like okay we're losing the voiceover if we're willing to throw yeah. that out too then then what are we going to do in terms of like, right well what's on the table then if we're exploring that as a possibility then like cool mm-hmm. then like then what works what does and we found kind of you know, through the process, what worked, it didn't work. What that moment, I think, solidified for she and I was, oh, we can't slip. We 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 will emphatically be like back to back in the trenches from here on out, no matter what. And it really mm-hmm. made us look, it really just, I think, galvanized our, um, just going to be in a foxhole with somebody, you know, and, and, I'm, sure. and I'm sure you guys had those moments too, when you're like trying to crack a, trying to crack a part of the story or trying to figure something mm-hmm. out and you just feel you're in the weeds at a difficult time. Right. And I think it mostly, I think solidified our personal relationship to just mm. be even more down for each other in a way that was like, okay, we can't seem crackable to the outside. <laughs> you know, it's almost like we got to be the most a united front, yeah. a, a united front. We got to be the most, you know, our Peter City Portier today, but like we got to be, but we got to be, you know, guess who's coming to Dear City Portier? Like our shit got to be buttoned up all the time. Now we'll mm-hmm. figure it out over here, but like, like United though, we got to be airtight all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's really what I think is solidified was just our personal bond. And I think obviously then helps feed the professional part of that, right? And, yeah, I've seen Issa praise you in the press. And it's kind of interesting praise because I think if you're not in the business, it could be taken the wrong way. But where she says your ego as a showrunner never got in the way with her as a, you know, she's the lead of the show. She's the creator of it. And I know exactly what she meant by that, where you weren't overpowering with something that, she would feel threatened by, yeah. you know, or that type of thing. And, and that's a, I feel like that's a, a personal comment about you as a person too. Like uh, that, once again, the picture to you, I feel is more important than you in that picture. Is that fair? Yeah. I, I, cause I, the way I viewed it was like, one, if I was a young Issa, what type of person would I want to be helping mm-hmm. me, right? Like what energy would I want from that person? I wouldn't want somebody coming in feel like they're like taking it. I also wanted to be like protective. I feel like she's like a little sister. Mm-hmm. So like, I know what it's yeah. like when you're first getting in this. I was like, I can imagine the pressure on her of creating a show for HBO, having to star in it. Yeah, pretty big. Like, I just felt like, you, like y'all are about to, it's almost like when that, that clip of like, uh, Richard Williams, when he's like, when that interviewer is like trying to like skull Serena and he's like, don't talk to her like that. Like, you're not about to crush her confidence like that. Exactly. You know, that, that, and that's just how I felt. And I felt the show was too special and important of what it was trying to be to like let anybody kind of come in and mess it up. Of which I never wanted to get in the way of what she was trying to do. And also, I wanted to be, to me, a version of what you were to her, right? Like, I don't want her to come in and be like, Oh man, Larry was great, but there's other motherfuckers coming in. <laughs> like I just wanted to be bring the same energy you were bringing to her, right? In in so many great ways, and so uh, that's it. Just became like I don't know, it, mm-hmm. just like she's like a little sister. I don't, I don't, I want to just be helpful. And the, in the, I always feel like the best version of what I was was like Joseph to her Mary, and that and the show is Jesus. Like, oh my I, God. I didn't, I didn't birth it. I didn't conceive it. But I'm yeah. a, I'm here to protect it, right? Or, right. or I'm the best stepdaddy the show will know, right? Like, right. I'm, I'm that's this, hilarious. It, that's how I always viewed. I was like the ba- I was like the most the show is mine is 49. percent The most it's gonna ever. That's be, right? so funny. So I just was like, this is her baby. I'm just here to like help guide it and protect it and be helpful in every way that to, to really take. I mean, I meant that in the documentary. Like, 
I went through things to take all the skills that I learned on these other places, give them yeah. to you. So then you can pay them forward in another way. Like, like Larry paid it to you. Like I'm paying it to you that like, you know, there were showrunners on that. There's like, you know, Serena Singleton went from my assistant to show running Issa's new show. Yeah, like that's great. Like skip the that. lines of like, she, like Serena got yeah. through stuff that you and I had to go through. She never will go through that now. She's just a showrunner. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, and I just think like that's, that's the legacy of like from you to me mm-hmm. to her to forward, right? To me, that's a that's the perfect, that's the that's the like ideal equation of what you went through, I went through for Issa, for somebody else, right? And I think that's yeah. the that's the real legacy of the show is even that line by itself, along with so many others. How did you guys come up with the themes for seasons, you know? Uh, especially from a showrunner point of view, was it something that you reverse engineered in the first season and then started doing consciously or did you uh look at go to that first episode and said you know we need something unifying uh to kind of help craft what these journeys are in the first season it was trying to figure out like what are our stories right what are the stories mm-hmm. that just us right. then the second season and Issa and i and, and and you guys did this too right we would just sit and talk about mm-hmm. what my friends are going through what your friends are going through and then try sure. to relate them to the characters all in the same way and what we were trying to do was say, okay, if this is the previous season, what brick would go on top of that brick, right? So, like, if the, mm-hmm. these were just real life people, like, if this really happened to Issa, the person, well, like, what would her attitude be post this moment? Well, I'm gonna be in my, if I'm broken up, I'm gonna be in a whole face. So, like, great, that's an energy that like we can like take that around, mm-hmm. or, I'm, or I'm no fucks right now because I'm I'm hurt, so I'm gonna protect myself right. through not giving a shit. That's like the energy. So it would really be like that would kind of be the Issa drive, but then thematically what we would try to do is go, we would talk about Molly's, the stories that we were interested in for Molly and to some degree Lawrence, or if it was not Lawrence, Daniel or whatever guy mm-hmm. was our initial uh, male character. And then we would go, is there a unifying idea mm-hmm. that we can connect these threads through? So like season three was like all about adulting, right? So mm-hmm. it was all mm-hmm. like, okay, I've had two seasons or two years or whatever the time of making these mistakes. Okay. I can't, right. I can't, say I want to grow and then continue to do the same things. I have to adult, right? So adult, mm-hmm. two steps forward, one step back, but I'm always moving forward in some, I may get knocked down, but that's not going to deter me that much. I, I'm going to still recognize I need to do better. I need to eat my vegetables. I can't pretend that if I just eat, you know, ice cream all day, I'll be totally fine. I can't do that anymore. So, <laughs> right. so that was always our thing was building mm-hmm. on top of the next, on top of the next, on top of the next. Um, mm-hmm. And then we would try to find an idea that all the characters were sort of going through thematically. And we'd be like, that's, let's embrace mm-hmm. that theme, right? So, you know, season four, obviously we had gone through a lot of stuff with, you know, the characters. And now it was, yeah. okay, why these people is, okay, you know, Molly has a lot of dirt on Issa. Issa has a lot of dirt on Molly. What is it mm-hmm. like when you're trying to grow, but your friends know all the good and the bad, right? When they, mm. you know, they're subconsciously holding you to a place. So we were like, oh, this is the interesting theme. Like, is this, is this yeah. relationship that's a season, a reason, or a lifetime? And and we were all, Easton and I were all going through that in our own kind of personal lives. And so wow. we galvanized the season around that. Is Lawrence a season or a reason or a lifetime? Is Nathan, is Molly, is, and we just threw that for all the characters. And so that's, mm-hmm. so that's how we would kind of do it is we do these individual ideas and then say, is there a unifying idea based on the previous three or two seasons that we did, but like before already? And yeah. we go, what's an interesting starting place thematically for them? It's such a smart way to to craft something, especially one of the benefits of not having to do twenty five episode or that type of thing is you can take a theme like that and really create 
like some buoyancy to the stories where they're kind of in, they're kind of even unconsciously informing the other stories. And there's this art that the audience feels that doesn't have to be so literal all the time. It's always interesting because uh, like when they're watching it, they're watching this one episode, right? Mm-hmm. And not knowing, and we know as an audience member, like, I mean, we know as the writers, yeah. this is going to pay off. Just yeah, trust up. us. Everybody. Trust us that like, this is going to, people get so, I mean, obviously we love it. They're so invested, but they would be like, yes. it don't make no sense to me. Why are you doing this? <laughs> I know your beginnings of your seasons were hilarious because you were obviously starting a new thing. Yeah, we're starting a whole yeah. new. Yeah. Yeah. Why are they doing? Yes. And why isn't this an hour? Yeah, why isn't it an hour? <laughs> yeah. How did that make, how did you deal with it? We were like, stop people, stop, slow down. I went through like my stages of grief about it where I would be super like, what are they talking about? It, it's more than a network show. A network is 21, 22 you know, minutes. We're giving 28 and a half. And then I went through my like, and trying to explain it. And then I just went through like, ah, oh, fuck y'all. And I would just start throwing shade. And then people started uh-huh. liking that. People liked, like, That's you know, like, people like when you like, people talk and then when I respond, people go, I can't believe you responded. You're right, you're right, you're right. I'm tripping. And I'll be like, <laughs> So it's like, nigga, you came at me. Why you came at me. I'm sitting here minding my business. <laughs> right. So at some point, uh, I think I've seen you said it was early on, but there certainly must have been a discussion between you and Issa about five seasons. Like yeah. five was going to be enough. Did you talk about that early on? And also, why did you feel it had to end then in five seasons for you personally? For it started when we were making season one and we were like, this is hard. Oh wow. <laughs> it started really yeah, it started in the yeah. production of season one. We were like, this is hard. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> this is hard. <laughs> That's so funny. And it was just hard because we were like, this is like, you know, it was like 10 months and we knew we'd have like two months off and go right back into this job. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I so I think it was like. I think as we were telling, as we were talking about it, talking about this, I think we felt like, well, what's a sustainable amount of time that feels like not too short, but we don't want to, we never wanted to overstay. So we mm-hmm. were like, we never want to be here. We're like, why is Lisa still falling down? She's still so clumsy. I don't get it. How old is she? She's still falling down. Uh, and so we, we felt, and, and you're, and, and you know this too, Larry, like, I feel like every show has a DNA of how it can, what the stories can hold and how it can sustain itself. Right. Yes. And I always feel like certain shows are not built to go 20 seasons, eight seasons. Right. Some shows DNA, what they can hold, the way the story is played out. They're good for four and like, that's it. But that's not how our business, it it runs more that way now. It certainly never went that way before. Right. So Mm -hmm. for us, it was, okay, what's a reasonable amount of time that we can like feel we could tell these interesting stories. Mm -hmm. They won't get old. And we felt four was too short and we felt six felt like, man, it's a long time. And also, you know, to your point, you know, you had been working with her for two years, but she had been doing Awkward Black Girl three years right. already. So she exactly. started been living with the show yes. five, six years into season one as, the, as a yeah. you know concept. So she, she's been doing this show basically... She's been falling down for 11 years. As I like to say, a lot of it was in her rear view, not her windshield. Yeah. And so I think that's what people, people go, oh, it's only five seasons. But I'm like, yeah, but she's been doing the show seven years before we did the five. So that's a really good point. So I think it was, I think it was a combination of how long to do that. I think how long to do the show that six felt very long. Four felt we would, we're just doing season one. So like like three more years, that doesn't feel, and we felt we had a lot more meat on the bone. And so, and the closer we got to five, the more it just really was like, one, it did a few things. It was like, yeah, it really galvanized that five felt right. And it also felt that we could write to something interesting, knowing that that was the number, 
even though we didn't tell HBO till after season four, but we we knew what we were building to in some form, in some form. Mm-hmm. Um, like we knew the end was a character learning to be secure in her insecurities. We always knew that's the like out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we felt we were, okay, well, well, that's the out. Let's start to grow her to that point, knowing that we're going to end it in five. So uh, not necessarily knowing all the things that were going to happen in five, but understanding that we want her to be, and obviously like the Molly Issa stuff in season four gave us like, oh, this is like a perfect Treating four, knowing that five was the last one, it allowed there to be a lot more conflict in four. So there could yeah. be more growth and healing in five. So that actually laid out really in a great way for us because we knew, oh, great, we'll have this conflict and then we'll have some healing, right? And get them to be okay. Because that feels like if you were writing that as a movie, you'd say like, oh yeah, this is the act two low point where the best friends mm-hmm. hate each other. And then the third act is they're going to fix it and, and, you know, fall back in love together as friends. And so that's how we wanted to treat five. What were uh, some of your best memories from Insecure? Anything stand out? Like where you go, man, that was, that was so much fun. I don't know if there was, to me, it was always being in the writer's room was just, Mm -hmm. everything was fun, right? Like being like, we would have cocktail like Fridays and we would just like have like, (laughs) You know, just like stuff. wine and cheese and just like get to know each other as people. Like we went to Disneyland. Yeah. It was all these sort of like, or going to, when we did the Coachella episode, all the writers went to Palm Springs. A lot of the writers went to, so we got to just hang out in the middle of filming and just like hang out at the hotel. And those moments I think were just great. And, and really the early days I think were when we didn't, when nobody knew what we were doing and like mm-hmm. casting and working with a young Yvonne or a Jay or an Alon. And you mm. feel like you're just like, making a little toy in your own room that like nobody knows about yet. And yeah, yeah just kind of like that. you and your friends. Are just, I mean, you know, like when you're doing Bernie in the beginning and you're just like, oh, we're just doing this. Oh, like, couldn't wait. It's just so fun, right? Because once it's out there, it's like now there's, it, not that it's bad to have expectations. It's just, it's out yeah. there. It's not your little thing anymore, right? There's something fun That's about, right. there's something fun about, for me always about like figuring it out. I love figuring something out. Me too. And that's yeah. such the fun part of the story is because that's what we were always trying to do the rest of the season was unfigure it out. Because yeah, you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to fall in the pattern of like. So we were always like, how do we how do we break it again? How do we like break it apart right. in some way without so breaking the show, but breaking it apart so where we don't write ourselves these predictable storylines that we. So we always just those were the parts to me that were just fun. All the like because we didn't really have we never had any drama. We never had like crazy like late nights where it was a, like a grind to do our show the, the grind was always production the writer's room is just i don't know we were just it was just fun writer's room is fun you know it's just a fun place to be and you've had so many hats you know showrunner writer you know you're a producer of something putting all the elements together and now i know you you, you want to direct more and you did a feature which is great you know where do you find your you have uh, most expression or you feel the most free. I love when you talk about the writer's room because it, it seems like that's that puzzle piecing together from that writing standpoint is a lot of what you love. Yeah, I think I still, I don't know if I'll, I mean, even if I direct a lot, I, I still will always be, feel like I default to writing because it's just my avenue into all of it, story-wise. Yeah. Just the way my head, my mind, I guess, thinks. But what I do love about directing and I definitely love it more is being able to take it and like reimagine it, right? Like, you know, like, you know, it's like, it's one thing it's on the page, but it, on its feet, it's gotta be something else. And then the editing room, it's gotta be something else. But, mm-hmm. and I've heard you say this, is like what you're trying to maintain is truth 
throughout all those phases, right. right? And so what I really love, I don't know all the technical stuff yet. I'm still, I have so much to learn, obviously, because that's just not mm-hmm. my thing. But what I, I I do love is like really working with um, actors to figure out, okay, I know what it is on the page and we'll get that. But like, what's something else here that we could like, to the point of figuring something else out, what's something else here that's like not on the page? What's the interesting part that we mm-hmm. did? Like what happened right before this scene that we're never going to see, but that the energy we can come into the scene with, that's different, right? You know, what, like, I can imagine, oh, well, what brought you to this point, right? Like, what happened here? What happened there? Is there a moment that we don't see that's a quiet moment that that you're thinking about? I just like giving the actors other things to, like, identify with or play or discover, because th- they're sometimes thinking of the scene before and the scene now. But mm-hmm. if the scene is a day apart, well, so much in between that day could have informed <laughs> Yeah. Then this new scene. Right. And so those are the things that I really love is like finding these little nuggets and things like that and being able to use like a perfect example was in the season four finale. That scene was originally constructed as like a, um, you know, when Lawrence tells her uh, I Condola's pregnant, you see the whole flashback of Condola and then you come back to the present day and then like Issa obviously has learned the news. Right. But that's very linear. It was very way that you'd write that. But having done the movie, I was like, well, what's a what's a visual way to tell this that's like not that way? What's a more interesting dynamic that the audience is kind of the audience is hearing the news jarring? So how do we jar it for Issa and Lawrence and Condola? And so having done the movie, I was thinking more visually about scenes. I said, let's write the scene. So it informed the writing. I was like, what if we do the scene where you never know who's going to answer to what news? And then like that'll, so then you can cut back to Issa and then she can ask a question. You can go to Condola and Lawrence is kind of in the middle of like telling two mm-hmm. stories to two different people. And you get to see Lawrence react harshly to Condola, but softly to Issa. But I don't know if I would have thought about it that way had I not done the movie, right? The movie was helping me see things more visual. So I liked that the visualness of doing something else helped inform the writing in a different way. I love that. You know, I think it's, uh, man, ah, all you young writers, man, listen to Prentice, you know, but thinking cinematically is as valid a way to construct something as constructing it emotionally, Yeah, you know, and figuring out the beats that way. They're both, they go hand in hand, you know? Yeah. Um, I love visual thinking, you know, and writing and that type of thing. It's so important because this, this stuff is meant to be seen. Yes. You know, <laughs> it's yes. meant to be experienced. It's not just meant to be read on the page. It's meant to be seen and experienced, you know. But you would do that a lot with Bernie too, right? Where Absolutely. He- yeah. I got in trouble for it because they thought I didn't know what I was doing. And I'm like, you have no idea. I watched Ken Quapis and I, when we were, when I, we were doing the pilot, we sat and watched French New Wave films together. Really? Yeah. Just to get in the mood of talking about the show in visual language as well as the emotional content and yeah. the style. I intentionally wrote cutting style into the pilot episode, you know, where I would have pauses done intentionally, you know, that were cinematic yeah. pauses, you know, and that type of thing intentionally. So it, it would be already be on the page, you know. There'd be, obviously there'd be so many great moments where the kids or something, it just goes to Bernie not saying a word. Then you <laughs> yes, exactly. cut back to the kids and you'd cut back to the chair. The chair just be empty. And then he'd walk right. back in the frame more mad. Like just what? And it was like, that just told you everything without him having to tell you he's mad just by his absence exactly. or him walking without seeing his face, just seeing his legs pace. Exactly. Cinematically, I wanted to convey a feeling without having to do it literally. You yeah. Know? Like, uh, and I would say at the end of the episodes, you know, this gets a little intellectual, but I wanted the audience to have a, a 
kind of a gestalt of what has <laughs> happened, you know. I like, love Bernie Mac and gestalt. As a, a gestalt, <laughs> exactly. Like, cause, so, well, what, what is the plot? Like, they would ask me, they would be so mad at me. Like, we did, my favorite episode of Bernie was, it was called Hot, Hot, Hot. And I threw out uh, constructing stories by plot, like, very early on. And it really made him mad because that's how, that's the only thread yeah. that they have to be able to give notes on is by plot. Yep. What happens, what happens, what happens. This is caused by that, caused by that. But I threw the plot out very early and just constructed the stories based on his emotional through line, you know. And then and then there'd just be events that were there to express the emotional through line. That was great. It's also like, to that point, it's like, it's so... You what you were doing was so far ahead of like oh they I got fired because of it Francis I got fired because they thought I was incompetent but uh like so this is what they said they said uh so it was the episode was called hot 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 they said so what happens in this episode and I go it's hot <laughs> <laughs> sorry Larry no and I'm like sorry that's what happens it's hot. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> and it was it was one of our more popular episodes, you know. But of of course, what happens is this journey that he goes in emotionally. There's no plot in it. Right. I can't tell you the plot, you know. But there's a myriad of things that happens emotionally to Bernie. Yeah, that's so great. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but it, but we were using different language, and they just didn't get it, you know. But I was using true cinematic language in trying to do that, you know. Yep. And not. Um, antiquated sitcom language, which really is based on farts, you know, in those days, especially like there's misinformation about something and the door slam is Jack gay. Ah, I don't know what's going to happen. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would say three's company was always one phone call or one encounter of the whole story falling apart. <laughs> yeah, done. You know, but uh, I was thinking about this, but in the Bernie Mac pilot to me, it was like, what's Bernie's journey? It's like, I'm a man. These kids are a problem. These kids are permanent. Like that was his journey, you know, and it's a very simple emotional journey. But, and then I just chose the events to show that, especially kids. Kids are not a problem. Kids are permanent. That's a huge journey. You yeah. Know? Especially for a man who's like, I don't have kids. Exactly. Enjoying my life. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, this niggas, this is easy. I don't yeah. know. What's yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, but having that, you know, having the space to do that, which is, you know, coming back to you, I love that you guys had the space to operate like that in those areas. That's why I love people hearing how you guys created these stories. You operated in a completely creative space. And that's what's so interesting about television now because it's like done the, it's done the yeah. flip of movie, right? Absolutely. It's like, it's like now TV is where it's at and movies like- Where um, well, you in 96 were yeah, saying. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a little, it's flipped now, yeah. yeah. Now, movies are the safe place where it's like superheroes and all this stuff. You know, TV is the dangerous It's where it's interesting, yeah. Yeah. What's coming up next for, for you, Prentice? I know you have a, a set up over at Onyx, yeah. the collective over at uh, Hulu, which is a very exciting new place. What type of things are you kind of uh, excited about right now? Yeah, we have, um, we've sold like four or five things over there so far. Um, I'm going to do a, a, a docu-series over there that I'm excited about. Great. That, awesome. That's a good uh, space for you. Yeah, I think that'll be really cool. Mm -hmm. And then um, just trying to get more TV shows on the air over there. You know, some movie yeah. stuff at Netflix. Hopefully we'll know some stuff soon. But mm -hmm. we're really just trying to get the get the brand up and going on the Good. side more stuff so yeah are you going to be directing more on the feature yeah side? i'm definitely going to be directing more right now i think i'm 
supposed to do two movies kind of in the next four years three but you know who knows Uh, yeah (laughs) it kind of plays on the side and then when you're ready to when you're ready to insert yourself for those three months or whatever yeah i'm like i'll i'll when those things come i'll you know we'll do them but right now obviously it's mostly just trying to get the tv stuff up and going over there well, I really appreciate you being here, you guys. Princess Penny, if you haven't seen the finale of Insecure, we didn't give away anything here, so you can still go see it. It's really, really sweet. It's such a nice finale. Um, and if you haven't seen Insecure, not just because it's our show, guys, but you really should watch it. It's really a lot of fun. Issa is a revelation from start to finish. The cast is amazing. Natasha Rothwell, how about that? I wish I could say I was surprised, but not surprised at any of this for her and that story she came i met with natasha for the nightly show because she oh, had, really she didn't have a good experience at saturday night live and and we said come on over here you know and i met with her and i was like oh man she's hilarious and then if we didn't hear anything i'm like well, what's going on? i asked somebody what's going on with natasha that meeting went great oh she got a job in a second i'm like great which one <laughs> insecure insecure that's my show <laughs> like how's she over at insecure <laughs> you know and i was like all right i'm happy for her i'm happy for her I, I remember i had no idea <laughs> that's so funny i didn't know that i didn't know that she was the first interview we hired and we got the phone with her we were like we should hire her <laughs> yeah definitely oh she's so impressive yeah she's, great. she's so great yeah she's great. can't wait for her prentice penny you guys insecure thanks so much thank you larry i appreciate it man